Hello and welcome to Monocle on Culture. I'm Robert Bounds. The Christmas trees have come down, the baubles have been packed away for another year and we've just about recovered from a raucous New Year's Eve celebration. 2024 is underway and if, like us, you're lamenting the end of the holiday period and the gloomy but short days of January which stretch out ahead, we've got your back. Today we're finding the cultural bright spots in 2024 to look forward to, the art shows worth the excursion, the books you should be pre-ordering and the TV shows to look forward to slumping on the sofa in front of. From 16th century Spanish conquistadors to a brand new Star Wars prequel and what to expect at the 60th Venice Biennale, we're packing a lot into this Look Ahead show, taking you around the world and out of it. So let's get started. Today I'm joined by the film, TV and culture commentator Ashanti Omkar, the head of content at Listen Gallery, Ossian Ward, and the writer and literary critic Chris Power. It's a powerful threesome. Welcome all to the program. <laughs> Lovely to have you here. So we'll get the we'll get some New Year's Eve out the way. This is coming out. This is the eighth of January, but we're pretending that it took us seven days to get over our New Year's hangovers. <laughs> How are we all feeling around the table? Perky, perky. Okay, yeah. Ossian's not to be moved. He's all right. I'm fine. I'm fine. <laughs> okay. Um, I'm Shanti, excited. Very you're full excited. of beans. Full of beans. <laughs> nice. Um, well, Chris, actually, we're going to start with you uh, and with books. And your first choice is You Dreamed of Empires by Alvaro Enrique. Now, this sounds amazing, intriguing, intoxicating stuff. Where are we and when are we? We're in Tenochtitlan, which is... The I'm, glad, that I'm glad it was you to read out that. <laughs> this is a polysyllabic novel, made, yes. made no mistake. So we're in Tenochtitlan <laughs> in November 1519 when um, Hernán Cortés and his very small band of conquistadors who travelled across from... They'd founded Veracruz in the east of Mexico and then they travelled across. Obviously, it wasn't Mexico at this point. It was Mexica and it was mm. ruled by the Aztecs. They come to Tenochtitlan, which is kind of the nerve centre of Aztec civilization. And Cortes meets Moctezuma II, the Aztec emperor. And from this meeting really grew the, the kind of the mestizo Mexico, you know, this blend of Indian and Spanish mm -hmm. that, that is the country today. And that's really Enrique's, um, what he's fascinated and obsessed with in this book, exploring the kind of the resonances and the painful birth of his country that resulted from this meeting. I mean, is this taken from record or is this a very novelistic imagining of what was happening or are we drawing on set texts? Well, it's both. I mean, he's drawing on Bernal Diaz, who was one of the conquistadors. He wrote a book called, I think actually sort of recounted it 60 years after the events, mm -hmm. close to his death. And then it was published a further maybe 70 years on all Spanish historians, Mexican historians probably shaking their head at me. But a long time <laughs> afterwards, it's called The Conquest of New Spain. You know, it's, yeah. a, it's a Penguin classic. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure Bernal Diaz is very happy about that. But he recorded this sort of day-by-day -day account of what happened because they were in Tenochtitlan for like two years. An awful mm. lot happened. And it sort of puzzled over why didn't Moctezuma kill these people because they turned up with a large army of disaffected people who didn't who wanted to overthrow the Aztecs why did he sort of let them linger and eventually they took Moctezuma prisoner and eventually Moctezuma died and then you know the, the conquistadors took over but that it could have gone a very different way and in Enrique's novel it kind of does go different ways he compresses an awful lot into one single day mm. and you get told a lot in flashback about the conquistadors arrival and journey through mexico the land that would become mexico i should say 
But you also get, you know, Moctezuma having an awful lot of magic mushrooms and magic tomatoes and magic cacti. I love the idea of this. I love the sound of this. I mean, this is, this is, it's also the be- it's also where the best Neil Young album comes from, right? Zuma. This ca- I mean, I, th- I thought Austin Ward was a, was a Neil Young fan. I thought he might be nodding along to this because that's all about the, the kind of legend behind this meeting as well, I suppose. Yeah, and music's very relevant, actually, because at one point when Moctezuma is tripping in a temple he actually hears the strains of monolith by t-rex great record you don't know it fire it up (laughs) on spotify yeah but that goes so the way enrique is sort of collapsing time like he's constantly referring back to the fact that he is writing this novel in modern day america where he's he's based he's mexican but he's based in america and he's kind of playing that sort of metafictional game but to but to significant purpose i mean because this it's extraordinary the country is sort of founded from a, a single meeting, really a single kind of mm. almost handshake between two men. It's a very unusual kind of historical aberration that he's exploring. I like taking it in a trippy way. History done trippily, or not, or just simply the novel done trippily. Yeah, it's like those awful blurbs end on acid. I mean, this, <laughs> it's literal in this case. We could have said steroids. We're going with acid. It's far more fun. That was You Dreamed of Empires. It's by Alvaro Enrique. And you don't have long to wait. Harville Secker will be publishing that at the end of this week on the 11th of January. Thank you, Chris. Sounds amazing. Great place to start. Ashanti. Hello. Lovely to have you on the programme again. Where are we starting on your list? I believe we're starting up in the air. Yes, indeed. Masters of the Air, in fact, mm-hmm. on Apple TV+. Plus. Very exciting show. We've been waiting for this for a long time. It's taken a while for them to get this going. COVID, actor strike, etc., etc. Right, yeah. et but 26th of January, it's coming out, the day after my birthday. So I am very happy about this. <laughs> now, this is Book to TV, and it is from a book called America's Bomber Boys Who Fought the Air War Against Nazi Germany. So you can mm-hmm. kind of guess who wins. Um, yeah, I was going like, to say, I know that there is, we were talking about the, uh, the embargo yes. on talking about this show. Mm. We, we do, there, is, there are some spoilers we can probably handle. <laughs> indeed, yes. indeed. And, and this one is particularly epic because we've seen Tom Hanks and Steven Spielberg come together for, you know, Band of Brothers, The Pacific. So this is almost like a trilogy that they're uh-huh. completing together as, as producers. And this time around, Austin Butler, who was Elvis last year and is now a master of the air. He's <laughs> got quite a kind of young Val Kilmer vibe about him in this. He has, seems, he I has. Think. And his voice has kind of it's not as raspy as Elvis anymore mm. in this in the show and Chuti Gatwa aka our new Doctor Who uh-huh, who yeah. <laughs> we all kind of watched at at Christmas time because that was very exciting and it's also got some other very interesting cast members like Barry Keoghan who is really really popular right now and has won a BAFTA et Can et Barry Keoghan do no wrong discuss Maybe it's maybe maybe, maybe <laughs> it depends what side he's on. Presumably in America's Bomber Boys, isn't it? Uh, yes. Well, I would say he can do no wrong in terms of being an actor because he is just so brilliant. Yeah. And you know, we are seeing in this show the epicness of the fact that you know back in the day you'd read it as a book and you'd imagine it, but now it's come to life. You've got the CGI, you've mm-hmm. got the Apple money behind it, so you know the budget is there, which I think is a very important aspect of this. And it's just quite an old. This is you know this seems from from what I've seen, this looks like a pretty old school World War Two drama, stirring do stirring drama. Is it? Can you discern that it's been taken somewhere else or is it quite a straight-laced World War II 
drama. <laughs> it, it, it is. It's yeah. it's dark. It's disturbing when you right. see what these. They're literally boys. You know, mm-hmm. when 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 they go in, a lot of them are boys, and what they have to go through is scary. And the fact that some of them have done up to fifty missions in that time is again something that is unimaginable in today's times. Mm. They look at mental health, which is a very important aspect for anyone. You know, working under the war machine, so to speak. Mm. So that was another portion that I thought was important. The female characters are few and far between, but they do pack a punch. So that (laughs) I liked. That's Masters of the Air. It's Apple TV Plus, if you fancy. Don't know why. (laughs) And it's out on the 26th of January. Ossian, um, we're going to, we're whizzing to Artland and you're going to start us off at the RA here in London with Entangled Pasts. Yeah, Entangled Past's full title, 1768 to now, Art, Colonialism and Change. I'm going to preface this by saying that, you know, it seems a long time ago that we first talked about BLM and all those Mm. things. And yet now, so February, this is not the only show kind of addressing these issues. There is a big show about the Harlem Renaissance at the Met in New York. There's a big show called Soulscapes at Dutch Picture Gallery and something else at the National Portrait Gallery called Time Is Always Now about black portraiture. It seems like, I mean, I don't want to be mean, but, you know, museums have taken two to three years to kind of yeah. select. And, you know, a lot of museums have been wringing their hands and wringing their collections and seeing whether the philanthropist who set them up was indeed an evil slave trader. And, and so everyone's been kind of looking into their own institutions. But I think in order to come up with an excellent show, you probably need the two or three years of research. So this is all about, you know, empire, power, history. It seems weird to think that there might be some kind of nostalgia for empire. I mean, apart from maybe certain members of our government, you know, it doesn't feel like a moment that we would celebrate. But Mm -hmm. there's obviously this idea that we need to interrogate that idea of, of empire. So... You have contemporary art, but you also have historical art. And beginning with the original Royal Academician himself, because it's him who's in the plaza, you know, the big portrait of Joshua Reynolds, the statue there. So it turns out that he, if he didn't exactly have a slave, he certainly had a black attendant who kind of helped him with his work and painting. No name, of course, no record. But there are paintings so... A lot of these images will include sort of the first black sitters. There's an amazing bust, a limestone carving from 1758, the first known black portrait in sculpture form. Again, these are kind of undocumented. You know, it's hard to know where it could have been something to do with Cuba or Haiti or Guyana or the Caribbean or, you know. So a lot of it is kind of up to conjecture what was going on yeah. with these, you know, And I suppose the sitters. argument around that and the ignorance of who people were is part and parcel of this, right? Portraiture is about celebrating the great and the good in inverted commas, the size of the studio. Then the lack of documentation of, of these people, I suppose, speaks quite eloquently to the times and to empire itself. Right? Yeah. So it would be interesting to see how they can square these impossible circles, mm. really, because, you know, they'll have the help of contemporary artists. So someone like Lubaina Himid who's made this amazing work of 100 plywood cutouts of enslaved Africans from 18th century Europe. It's this kind of cavalcade of uh, figures that you'll encounter in the gallery. Uh, and similarly, there's an, a nice work by Hugh Locke called Armada, 
which is these small model boats, kind of a bit like you'd get in a church, like these kind of votive mm. offerings kind of surging forward. So there's lots of themes about migration, empire, slavery, uh, you know, difficult but necessary and hopefully, you know, will be kind of eye-opening as much as sort of hand-wringing and trying to do the yeah, right thing. Yeah, curatorially interesting rather than just right on. I yeah. Suppose, right? yeah, I mean, yeah. you could say that there's also a timely aspect, you know, that the idea of kind of treating undocumented migrants as, you know, whether they were proper citizens or not, you could say plus a change still, still happening. Yeah, indeed. <laughs> yes, I guess it's a live issue. Entangled past, a bit like the present, that is on at the Royal Academy uh, from the 3rd of Feb until the 28th of April this year. Thank you, Ossian, very much indeed. Chris, back to you. Alphabetical diaries... Well, let us know a little bit about this, but I love the idea of, of this book. I love just even doing a bit of research on this one. So tell us where we're going. Yeah, it's fascinating. So it's by Sheila Hetty, who, um, you know, has a rep as a, I guess, as an auto-fictional author. She yeah. wrote How Should a Person Be?, which is about sort of young artists in Toronto. She wrote Motherhood, which is about a extremely Sheila Hetty-like character deciding whether or not she's going to have a child. A few years ago, the New York Times asked her for a piece of fiction, and she being Sheila Hetty and kind of just thinking about these things very interestingly, she took 10 years' worth of her diaries and ported them all into a Excel spreadsheet, and I think it was about 500,000 words, and ordered them alphabetically, and then kind of edited those into a... Well, she says it's not a narrative, but it's very interesting because it kind of... I think she has such a talent for narrativizing her life, as mm. her previous novels show that the narrative or multiple narratives do kind of crop up, but they're all kind of running concurrently. And as you read the book, you'll notice sentences which you think, oh, does that does that relate to the sentence I read back in the in the B section? Or yeah. even within the section, they'll be like, a few minutes later, he returned and untied me. And then a few pages later, you read, all weekend, ever since he tied me up, my thumb had been buzzing with numbness. Yeah. So your mind starts like making these connections. There's a bit of a Sibaldian vibe where you things are implicit all the time rather than explicit, I suppose. In the yeah, and a little bit like there's an amazing experimental, a famous experimental novel of the 20th century, Wittgenstein's Mistress by David Markson, mm. that has this kind of... Uh, effects of a kind of a mind in a kind of fugue state so it'll pick up a line of narrative and then drop it and then come back to it pages later and as you sort of learn to read the book or as the book teaches you to read it you start making these connections and that's what I found myself doing as I sort of dipped into alphabetical yeah. diaries but at the same time you can also just be in the the flow of it really because I think she wanted to see what's a person like over the span of 10 years like did I keep returning to the same obsession? So you might get a section. You can tell I've spent a lot of time with the A section because this is another one, but it's five <laughs> instances of the word we, alone. We won't quiz you on Z. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> it's, oh, in fact, that's very short. It's, just, <laughs> yeah. it's, uh, it's Zadie Smith looks great on stage. And then, <laughs> okay. and then zip it, he said, then turned away. That's the extent of Z. It's great. So you can, yeah, it's fantastic. Yeah. I mean, it's a really, she describes it as a book that's a game. That's one of the first entries, in fact. And it really feels that way. It's like something like Cortazar's Hopscotch or something, you know, these mm -hmm. books that kind of allow you to, to be playful in your, with your engagement with it if, if you want to read it that way. I guess it's narrative kind of gains weight like a locomotive as we get through the thing. From it seeming like an un, unconstructed thing or a deconstructed thing at the beginning, it becomes a thing as you get through the alphabet, I suppose. Is that how it kind of works? Absolutely, because certain, yeah. yeah, lovers, certain boyfriends will, will recur, certain... 
obsessions or, or accounts of loneliness or yeah, these five instances of the word alone. And mm. you think, OK, well, were any of them written together or were these five different times and was it over mm-hmm. what span of time? And, you know, the way the mind yeah, returns to what, what obsesses it and what preoccupies it. And I should say it's not, you know, you don't need to be interested in, in Sheila Hetty to be fascinated by this. And that, by the way, is out on the 6th of February, Alphabetical Diaries by Sheila Hesse. Thank you, Chris. Dense, philosophical, tangential and fascinating stuff. Thank you very much. Ashanti, almost exactly the same is Bridgerton, surely, uh, which is coming back for season three on Netflix. It it is indeed. I was thinking, "Hmm, we've got a book review just before mine. I've written in my notes, what's the difference? Um, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, so yes, hmm. where are we? What wheel are they reinventing for series three, or are we just trundling down the same exciting track? Well, Julia Quinn has now teamed up since the last Bridgerton season that we saw season two with Shonda Rhimes to actually write a book called Queen Charlotte, giving us the backstory of Golda Rochevel's famous queen, mm-hmm. biracial queen, the one that, you know, caused a lot of ruckus when they first introduced her in Bridgerton. Yeah. And this time round, instead of giving us, well, they are giving us a Bridgerton boys story, love story, but with a Featherington. And if you know all these people from the ton of the Regency era, you <laughs> Like I hope tabs. my face is kind of making that kind of. <laughs> I'm making that kind of cocktail party face. Where yes, I'm kind of going, yes, you are. No, no, you're right. Absolutely, shaking and, I'm and nodding I'm inside you. your head. Is it? I'm with me. No, it's not. It's not. Well, and this time round, we are also going to get more of Simone Ashley's character. So in the last season of Bridgerton, it was this will they won't they love story that took a long time to come to an end. So we kind of wanted to see a bit of that, and with people like Phoebe Denoir now kind of moving away from the, the series and the people who made it really famous, Reggae Jean Page, they've all become big actors now in Hollywood. So they are busy, but we've got this new set of people. And Nicola Kuglin, who is just absolutely amazing. We saw her in the Barbie movie yeah. most yeah. recently and in Derry Girls, which, you know, won loads of awards along the way. This is her story with Colin Bridgerton, who is played by Luke Newton. So it's going to be an interesting one. Netflix always kind of keep us on edge with this. They don't give us any information. They could drop a trailer anytime. They could drop extra content from behind the scenes anytime. And they could even just drop it on the platform without telling us. So Bridgerton debuted on Netflix in 2020, at the end of Christmas 2020. When when does it run? Does it feel like it's still full of beans? Does this feel almost like Netflix's soap opera, this this <laughs> show? Well, I wonder, you know, I mean, The Crown obviously has a... The Crown, for example, another Netflix show, has an obvious natural cutoff point. I yeah. wonder, wonder about something like this, where they're increasing the universe, they're making sort of in-jokes, they're playing around with their own creations. A hundred percent. And they've already... So they renewed it for season three and then season four at the same time. So we know we're getting a lot of the Bridgerton story. And the whole idea is... the. Bridgerton children, they are named, you know, alphabetically. So mm-hmm. we have quite a few to go through and lots of love stories so to come out of so this. So far, so Sheila Hetty. Yeah. You might say. Uh, yes. Fine. You've got the ABCs of Bridgerton here as well. Bridgerton comes back this year on Netflix. Thank you, Ashanti. Ossian, we're going to, should we go to Venice? Let's do it. Looking forward to it. Yeah. What's your big British 
Pavilion News. Yeah, I mean, obviously Venice comes around every two years and it's hard to exactly say what's going to be in it. The main show, the curator, is Adriano Pedrosa. So I think he's the first South American, Mm -hmm. first Latin American to take charge of the biennial, which seems crazy, but there you have it. And so that will mean that the main show... I would hope, has a big Latin American focus, which would again be a first for them. But yeah, I'm going to focus on the British Pavilion because it is John Acomfra, who works with us at Listen Gallery and is an amazing filmmaker, obviously part of the Black Audio Film Collective back in the sort of late 70s, early 80s, and now solo, but still with the same crew of people working on his films. And they're epic multi-screen installations with incredible sound and incredible visuals and sort of poetic and philosophical and everything. And difficult to say exactly what he'll be doing. He's sort of tentatively titled the piece Nine Cantos. So songs and the sonic will play a big part. So kind of I'm imagining very immersive, possibly more than one so the British Pavilion, if you haven't been, is this kind of weird neoclassical thing at the top of the Giardini, like the most British <laughs> overblown statement of architecture you could imagine. It, it, it was technically based on sort of tea house, wasn't it? But it's like it's a grand. Palladian it's massive. Very yeah, I mean, you know. And then you have the kind of the German Pavilion next door, which is kind of very stark and very modern, kind of real reaction to post-war. And then you mm. have the Canadian Pavilion, which is like a cool wooden hut you know they all have their own architectural foibles yeah i mean the finnish one is literally a wooden hut but so the british one kind of stands at the top of this it might be a sauna it could be and there's definitely make sure you take your towel not much more room (laughs) for for anything in there than that so the british pavilion is a big challenge it's also a big honor so john acomfra has obviously been around a long time again you could say it's about time you know a man of his stature it's Who knows how the biennial kind of selection process happens? You know, it could be that you're sort of hot in the moment or an artist of great note. It's quite difficult to know. But, you know, it's a great honour for him to be able to to do this pavilion. So it'll be interesting to see how how he tackles it. And also this kind of, it's not just one space. You kind of go into this grand Palladian neoclassical job and then you've got a big space, but there are these weird wings on either sides and a backspace. So I think there's going to be you know, more than one work, let's say these nine songs, nine cantos yeah. scattered around the building. Beautiful. Thank you, Ossian. Uh, that is the Venice Biennale, the British Pavilion particularly, uh, and representing the UK is John Comfer. Ossian, thank you very much for that. Chris, back to you for your final book. I love Lauren Euler. This is going to be good. Published by Virago as well. This is So this is all about being a critic. Yeah, this is this is great. This is so Lauren Euler, um, American Berlin based mm. critic. She's broken the London Review of Books uh, website twice with her kind of takedown reviews. Um, but she's not just the kind of <laughs> not not in a Kardashian sense, in a having a go at someone else. Sense. Absolutely, yeah. yes, absolutely. But not just a uh, not just a bother boy. She's uh, she's no, a great no. thinker and a very yeah. funny. Writer, and she, I guess she's kind of widening out. These aren't, you know, republished pieces. These are all new essays written specifically for this book. She's also written a novel, Fake Accounts. I don't know if you've read it, but she wrote a great article for Harper's about going on a, a goop 
cruise. Wow. And it's and and sort of knowingly trod on the sort of David Foster Wallace territory. Yeah. She loves David Foster Wallace. Now he obviously famously wrote a supposedly fun thing that I'll never do again. His yeah. his essay about being on a on a cruise ship. So she's sort of widening out into a kind of a cultural critic, I suppose, which is really exciting to watch and uh, ride alongside. And in this book, she sort of there is a lot about criticism. There's also a lot about uh, gossip and Gawker and Goodreads. And I'm not doing the Sheila Hetty thing and only doing, I'm not doing it alphabetically, but uh, also You'll fiction. You'll get on to H soon. I will, yeah. <laughs> Don't ask me about Z in this one. But criticism and what she loves about Berlin. And it's really interesting and entertaining on the kind of where the lines lie between artists and critics in terms of reviews and mm. responses to reviews. It's just a very wide frame of reference as well everything from like elizabeth hardwick and adorno who you might expect mm-hmm. to swifties and ted talks and sally rooney so there's, there's loads loads to explore there and what's her kind of tone of voice for listeners that might not know her work or read her work her tone of voice can be acid it's pretty ironic there's a great line where she's talking about how you know she has a kind of pleasure in people telling her how good berlin was before she got there because she writes uh like the most old right like most people of my they genera- said that to bismarck for god's sake yeah yeah well she cites some graffiti where it's like tourists out except me um she writes uh like most people of my generation i'm a masochist and in general i hate my life she has this sort of like downbeat tone yet when she is you know expressing her opinions there's a great piece on criticism where she ends I mean, there's a long essay, most of them about 50 pages long. She covers a lot of ground in them. But at the end of the criticism one, she's talking about Martin Scorsese when he came out against Marvel films. And she's talking about how he kind of walked that back slightly and talked about subjectivity Mm. in a New York Times opinion piece and how she was very disappointed by that. She's not so... She's she's kind of uh, old school in this kind of... I guess making a case for objectivity in in certain regards. She sort of talks about, oh, I know that some people are tired or they don't have internet access, they can't access everything and they might just want to slump in front of unimaginably bad movies. And you can list all these reasonable excuses why that might be the case, but at the end of the day... They're wrong and I'm right. I'm paraphrasing, but that's essentially. I'm fine with that. I'm fine with that. Anyone that anyone that can update Joan Didion, I'm fine about that. Sounds, <laughs> that sounds great. It is published by Virago on the seventh of March this year. Uh, it's called No Judgment on Being Critical by Lauren Euler. Chris, thank you very much. Ashanti, we're back to you, and we're going into the Star Wars universe. Yes, we are. With what? <laughs> with the acolyte. This one was uh, teased heavily at the Star Wars celebration that happened in London at Excel a few months ago. I had my oh. Stormtrooper out on, but no one invited me. <laughs> oh, no. Just walking up and down my street like an idiot. Oh, gosh. So anyway, you should have you go. just turned up at should've the Excel <laughs> centre because there were thousands of people dressed like that. And outside, you know, they had quite a little Jedi uh, experience. So lightsabers, fights, all of these things part of the Star Wars universe. We haven't really seen a lot about the bad of Star Wars. And a lot of us will remember the Skywalker saga, which has been given to us ad mm-hmm. nauseum in many ways over the years. So this time round, we're getting years before that. So the kind of shiny world of, of Star Wars, when things weren't so bad for the world, but the baddies are getting there and starting their own kind of war. Yes, yeah, so I'm always like getting these days when there is so many, there's Obi-Wan Kenobi, the, the series, there's the Mandalorian, there's all these bits that have been tacked onto the Star Wars universe. Some of them really good, some of them not so good. What about, where does this sit in the chronology? 
And from gut instinct, where does it sit in terms of quality, I wonder? Well, it's 100 years before Star Wars Episode One, The Phantom Menace, that came out in 1999. Yeah. And so we're seeing this of the very early days. So before we really see how the the baddies of the Force come about, but also how the Jedi, who are seen, you know, they're seen as the protectors of this whole universe. And you've got the form Padawan. Uh, the, the Padawan is like the, the young one who has been studying. And Amanda Stenberg who's been in quite a lot of things, Bodies, 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 for example. She's in this. Lee Jung-jae is the Jedi Master in this, and he was in Squid Game, mm-hmm. Netflix, and Manny Jacinto, and Jodie Turner-Smith, who's been popping up all over the place. They're all in this one. And basically, we are going to see what happens before what we've all learned. And weirdly, it's been described as Frozen meets Kill Bill, as one of the pitches that went through to wow. Disney with this, <laughs> which I thought... <laughs> Thought, mm, okay, I don't how know is where that to put to... that in the Excel <laughs> yes. spreadsheet. So. Absolutely. It, it kind of blew my mind that that was one of the ideas that they came up with. But I guess they wanted to build that epic world of something like Frozen, but also give us the fighting styles and all mm. the martial arts that, that Star Wars is known for. So I'm expecting a lot of, you know, lots of great fights. How many lightsabers there will be, I don't know, but it's going to be interesting to see. So, but basically we're back before... Chew, Chewie's voice broke almost. Yes. And he was a glint in it. <laughs> <He> was... <laughs> well, let's not go there. Let's, let's, not, go let's, there. let's not go let's there. Let's talk about the poor Chewie's conception. Thank you, Shanti. So your acolyte is coming to Disney+. Plus. Um, Ossian, your final art choice for 2024. Um, it's coming to the Barbican here in London. Francis Alice. Can you give us, give us a little bit of background on this artist? Yeah. Really intriguing artist. Yeah, he's uh, Belgian but lives in Mexico City. So he's kind of an outsider but his videos you might be familiar with. So he, for example, pushed a huge block of ice through the streets of Mexico City until it dissolved and became nothing. He took a can of green paint and dribbled a green line between the actual border of where the original Israel-Palestine 1947 ceasefire line would have been. He's also got a bunch of people to move a mountain a few inches by digging, which makes him sound like a kind of stunty guy, but he's not. It's Mm. a very sort of like thoughtful practice. Yes, it's based on humour, but it's also kind of like seriously performative, but also kind of questioning and political. I mean, this exhibition is joyous because, not to keep going on about Venice, but he did show a version of it at the Venice Biennale, and it's called Children's Games, and it's actually just a series of different videos, again, kind of immersive, spread throughout the space, about kids' games, but in different parts of the world. So you could be throwing snowballs in Switzerland, you could be playing musical chairs in Mexico, keepy-uppies in Nepal, although that's with a bundle of leaves, not a a ball, Uh, leapfrogging in Iraq, kind of weird games with stones put in holes. So he films the kids doing these, and they're sort of very poetic and very beautiful, they look joyous, you know, but also a little bit hardcore. So, so they're not vernacular games as such. You can play any sport in any country. They do have a kind of regional focus. Yeah. So, you know, some of them you wouldn't be familiar with. I mean, one of them is just boys charming mosquitoes. Kind of they've, they've learnt the little tone that will attract the mosquitoes. So they kind of ululate or whatever yeah. to the right frequency that will get the mosquitoes to gather around them. I, mean, I don't see that in South London every day. But there's a couple in the Congo which are quite... <laughs> Remarkable. So there's a boy 
rolling down the hill, but this hill is obviously like the kind of detritus from a cobalt mine. So, right. you know, there's stuff going on in the background, if you like, even though there's such joyous films. And this boy just gets in a tyre at the top of the hill and goes all the way down to the bottom, <laughs> which is, like, frightening, but also, like, he seemed to enjoy it. And much more South London. Yeah, yeah, much more. Yeah, we get that. You get that. So this is a sort of broadening out of his Venice show. This is, yeah. this, this is a sort of similar thing, or it's a... It's a it's an expansion on that thing. They say they say there's more to it. So maybe he's added some, you know, there's some great games which are kind of like physical versions of like gaming. So there's kids running around shooting each other in a kind of cowboy and western way. But I, there must be some new elements to it, some new games, you know. And you know, you could look at it as kind of exploitative. You know, what are these? Why are these kids doing this? But it's done with such kind of love. You can tell, and also. Maybe that a little bit of creepiness adds to the vibe. You know, these yeah. kind of some of these games are weird and violent and have and kids' their own... games are weird and violent yeah, totally. often, right? So yeah. it's, it's not as yeah. they should be. Yeah, um, rolling down a hill in a tire. Brilliant. That is Francis Alice. It's called Children's Games. It's coming to the Barbican in the summer, twenty seventh of June. That opens. Sounds great. I love his work. Yeah. Yeah, and I only wish the bar- when I was a kid at the Barbican, they we used to skateboard there, but they put these bloody barriers up in front of everything, so they're not really doing their job with children's games. Look at in the, the mirror, Barbican. Exactly. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, thanks, everybody. I really loved all your choices. Fascinating. We we talked about maybe getting the January blues. Not anymore. I'm vibing off your choices. Thank you very much indeed. That is it for this week. My thanks to Ossian Ward, Ashanti Omkar and Chris Power. Monocle on Culture is produced by Sophie Monaghan-Coombs and Steph Chungu. And Steph also edits the show. We will be back at the same time next week. But until then, from me, Robert Bounds, thank you for tuning in. 